So I'm about to turn 40. I turned 40 in June of this year. Um, and it got me thinking. I was thinking about when I turned 30, which feels like it was just yesterday, you know. It was almost 10 years ago. And I remember my wife did this really cool thing for me for my birthday. Uh, she had arranged for me to receive cards and letters from people all week, offering me encouragement, you know, sharing with me how our relationship had impacted their life. It was amazing. You know, I heard from people that I haven't talked to in years, former students from my first youth group who were married. You know, and I was just kind of like, what? I got letters from people that I'm in community with now, even letting me know how our friendship had, you know, impacted them in ways that I really wasn't even aware of. I had no idea that, that Lindsay had done any of this. And she collected these letters and these cards all week. And then one night uh, before I, I think it was the night before my birthday, uh, she gave them to me and I just sat there and I read through them. You can imagine I was a sappy mess, right? Reading through these letters. And I still have those letters. In fact, I pulled them out the other day. And I can say that without a doubt, they're one of the greatest gifts I've ever received. Top spot previously belonged to this samurai sword that my parents gave me one year for Christmas when I was a kid. I still have that too. <laughs> it's kind of fun to pull out every now and then. But you know, those letters now are, are number one. I think you would all agree that you know what matters to us most in life isn't what we have, but it's who we have. You know, it isn't in our stuff or our accomplishments. It's in our connection, our relationships with each other. When you talk with people who are on their deathbed, what they want in those final moments isn't to be surrounded by all their stuff or reminded of how successful they were. No, what they want is to be surrounded by the people that they love. You know, when I think about those letters, though, the reason they meant so much to me is because of who they were from. You know, they weren't just from anybody. They were from people who really knew me, people who, who I had let in, who had seen both the good and the bad and still somehow managed to, to like me anyway. You know, cracks and all. And the words they shared with me, they weren't just nice sentiments, right? But they were like these grace bombs wrapped in real life stories and moments that we had shared together that God used to remind me of just how beautiful a gift my life really is. Go back to the book of Acts, right? We've been looking at these two descriptions of the early church in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. And remember, last session we talked about how in that description in chapter 4, we were told that these first followers of Jesus were of one mind and they were also of one heart. Last time we talked about what it means to be of one mind. I want to spend some time in this session talking about what it means to be of one heart. Now, the word for heart in the scriptures it isn't talking about the, the organ in your chest, right? The, the organ that pumps blood. No, it's referring to the innermost part of who we are, to what some scholars refer to as the center of our being. For the early church, this sacred part of their lives, it wasn't something that was off limits from one another, but it was involved. It was shared. Not only was there a singleness of mind, but there was also a depth of heart as well. And that's what I want to talk about in this session. Not just how we can be on the same page, right, in terms of what we're trying to do, but so that we can also make sure that we're all hanging out at the same depth, so to speak. So towards the end of the description of the early church in chapter 2, the author Luke, he sneaks something in that I think is easy to miss. But I think it captures like the heart of what it means to be of one heart. Like how I did that. Verse 46 of chapter 2. He says that every day 
They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. That's the part I want to zero in on. It says that they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, just like today, but to a much greater degree in the ancient world, to share a meal in someone's home was to reach a level of like intimacy. It was reserved for those you were the closest to. I mean, for one, food was incredibly precious. You know, it wasn't as available as it is today. I think in our day and age, you know, in our part of the world, we tend to take having enough food for granted, right? So it may be hard for us to truly appreciate, you know, the food in our fridge, but in the ancient world, man, to have food on your table was has to be blessed, right? So food wasn't something to be discarded. It was to be cherished because it was a gift given by God in order to sustain life. And so to share something this valuable with others wasn't a casual thing, but it was an incredible act of solidarity. In fact, the Hebrew word for covenant, which is that deep binding relationship of mutual obligation, that word for covenant comes from the Hebrew word to eat. Think about that. To eat a meal with someone was to identify with them, to allow them into your inner circle, to make them a part of your tribe. That's why there's all this fuss in the Gospels from the religious people about who Jesus ate with, right? They were so bothered by the people that Jesus shared meals with. They were sinners, right? Because by doing so, Jesus, who's supposed to be this holy man, he was identifying with them. So eating together wasn't simply about sharing food, but it was sharing life. You see, being of one heart is a matter of allowing other people to have a seat at your table. It's about letting people in. I can imagine a lot of us are uncomfortable with this idea. I don't think it comes easy for us in our day and age, in our part of the world. I mean, we tend to keep people at a distance. Am I right? We prefer to interact with each other through these sort of projections or these facades. We only let people see what we want them to see. And we live with this sort of fear that if they saw the real us, they probably wouldn't like that. Remember years ago, I received this award for being one of the top 40 leaders under the age of 40 in the city where I lived. I'm not sure, you know, why they were so into the number 40, but that's besides the point. Apparently, it was a somewhat prestigious award, and I was really flattered. We were all invited to this big fancy dinner downtown in order to, quote, unquote, network, right? It was one of those dinners that had, like, the jazz band and the really fancy ice, uh, the kind with the hole in the middle of it, you know what I'm talking about? I remember walking in and immediately feeling so out of my league. Just about everybody there had on like designer looking clothes. They went to like Ivy League schools. It's like I got my suit at JC Penny, you know? And I'm pretty sure that there's toothpaste, there's toothpaste on my tie. I mean, most people I talked to, they went to schools like Harvard or Yale. I went to a Bible college nobody had ever heard of. One, I remember one guy asked me, So where'd you go to school? And I was like, Columbia. They're like, Columbia, like New York, Columbia. I was like, no, Columbia International University. It's probably never heard of it. It's that prestigious, you know. But I remember talking to this one guy who was telling me that he was learning to fly a plane in his spare time. I was like, all right, that's it. What am I doing here? You know, you ever had that voice pop in your head? Like, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. Yeah, you know, I didn't really want to interact with anybody after that. In fact, you know, I just... I went and made my way over to a nice dark corner and I just opted to be the mysterious guy for the rest of the night. You know, I think in a way this is a little snapshot of how many of us can live our lives. It's like we're afraid we're going to be found out. You know, that if people find out who we really are, 
then they aren't going to like us. They won't be impressed by us. And as a result, a lot of us, man, a lot of our relationships, they just stay really shallow. We can find ourselves surrounded by people, and yet we can feel pretty alone. Am I right? And what's so weird to me is we are like these walking, talking dichotomies. We all long for community and connection, but man, there's something broken in us that just leads us to hide from one of the things that we're wired for, each other. And so no wonder one of the first signs that sort of God's redemptive plan had taken this giant leap forward was this beautiful demonstration of community in the book of Acts, where these former strangers from all over the world open up their homes. They share what they have with one another with glad and sincere hearts. And so the question is, how do we follow their lead, right? How can we connect on a deeper level and actually share our lives with one another? I got three thoughts. It's always three, isn't it? I don't know why that is, but just it just feels right. I got three thoughts, three ingredients, you might say, of a community that's truly of one heart. First one is vulnerability. Now, I know that's a scary word for some of us. I mean, to be vulnerable is to open ourselves up and allow ourselves to be seen. In fact, that verse that I love from chapter 2 of the book of Acts, where it says that they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, that word sincere, it means without pretense. Nobody is pretending to be something they aren't, right? Nobody's hiding behind some sort of mask. I remember years ago, we had this uh, small leak under our kitchen sink for almost a year. And I don't like plumbing. I mean, I'll mess with some things, but I don't like plumbing. Water makes me nervous. It wasn't a horrible leak. And so at first, we just put this small glass bowl down underneath to catch the water until we could get it fixed, you know? And so when the bowl would fill up, it would just, it would smell awful. I mean, it was disgusting. It was water dripping out of the um, garbage disposal, right? And so we would just wait for the bowl to fill up with water. And then I would dump the water out and put the bowl right back there. And, you know, and my wife, she keep asking me, hey, when, when are we going to get this fixed? And I would tell her, hey, I'm getting on it. I'll get to it soon. You know, just be patient. Well, I think after like 10 months of dumping out the stinky water, she decided to take care of it herself. One night she was out with some of her girlfriends and she shared with them about her leaky sink and she just asked, hey, y'all know any good plumbers? Well, they immediately all volunteered their husbands and they assured her that they would be able to fix it. You wouldn't need to call a plumber. I'll send them over on Saturday. They can take care of it for you. Take care of it. It'd be a lot cheaper that way. Well, of course, she thought this was a great idea, right? When she comes home, I remember how excited she was to share with me the good news. How do you think I reacted when she told me? I was so embarrassed. I mean, I acted like she told them that I still sleep with like my favorite childhood stuffed animal. <laughs> I mean, vulnerability, it's so counterintuitive. And our fear of vulnerability has a lot to do with our culture's obsession with independence. In our mind, a healthy, strong, successful person is one who doesn't need anybody. It's somebody who can take care of themselves, like Bear grills, you know, out in the wilderness on his own. This obsession with independence is, is one of the things that I think can cripple our relationships. I mean, for instance, how do you feel when you have to ask for help? I mean, listen to yourself the next time you're asking somebody for a favor. How many, how many apologies do you weave into the request? You know, it's like, I really hate to ask this of you, or, or I know this has to be such a bother, but at the same time, we tend to keep these scorecards in our heads, right, of who's done what for us and what we've done for them. And so we can struggle to even enjoy a gift that somebody gives us without it being smothered under like this sense of obligation. So instead of being vulnerable, we just choose to wear our masks. We hold on to our independence, all the while the stench coming from under our sink is getting to be unbearable, if you know what I mean. 
I mean, Jesus calls us away from our obsession with independence, and he invites us into communities of interdependence, where we are committed to, to letting down the masks and allowing ourselves to be seen. I think it takes a decent amount of humility to admit that you need some help or to ask someone for something. But you know, the last time I checked, the scriptures are pretty clear that humility is a really good thing. It's something that I've noticed about vulnerability, particularly in you know these small group communities, is that it's contagious, right? When somebody is courageous enough to sort of throw something out there on the table, to share a struggle, to admit a need, the other people in the group often follow suit. Because believe it or not, we are not as alone as we think we are. So the first ingredient is vulnerability. The second one's compassion. Compassion is the other side of vulnerability. You know, if vulnerability is about letting other people look into our, our own lives. Compassion is about looking into theirs. This is what compassion is. And it's all over the place in the New Testament. Like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, tells us to be kind and compassionate to one another. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, instructs us to actually clothe ourselves with compassion. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, the author calls us to be sympathetic and to be kind and compassionate towards each other. Now, the word compassion is one of the more colorful words in the Greek language. It's this word splonknon. Isn't that great? And it literally means to feel in your intestines or to feel in your guts. And I think it makes perfect sense. Because when, like, when you hear somebody that you care about going through a really difficult time, where do you feel that for them? Where do you feel it in your body? You feel it in your guts, right? That's what compassion is. Compassion is to feel what another person is feeling. And I think it has this powerful way of bringing us together. Remember when my wife and I first got married, we lived in this tiny one-bedroom apartment. I mean, it was small, and the walls were paper thin. I mean, you could hear just about everything that was going on in the rooms around you. Our neighbor below us, let's just call him Bud, or I can't remember his name, but we'll go with Bud. He had a dog that he kept locked up in his bathroom while he was traveling for work, and this dog would bark the entire time that Bud was gone. He'd be lying in bed at night, and it would sound like the dog was in our bathroom. But one time he was gone overnight. I think he's gone for the whole weekend. That bark, that dog barked from like 8 p.m. to like 10 a.m. the next day, nonstop. And that was it. We decided to call management. We let them know what was going on. They told us that they would talk to him. They'd take care of it. Well, the next day we got a phone call from the apartment complex. And they told us that they had talked to him about locking the dog in the bathroom. But they said he was really angry that we had reported him. And they literally said, just, just try to steer clear of him because he's really hot. And I was like, what? He's mad? I was like, no, you go ahead. You can send him right up to my room. I'd love the chance to talk to him about it. I mean, I was fired up. Like, he was mad because we reported him about his dog. I mean, he was keeping us up, that poor dog being locked in the bathroom. I mean, I was fired up. I was hoping he'd come knocking on my door, right? Well, that Friday night, I remember it was a Friday night because we were watching Dateline. That's how we did it back in the day, man. That, that was our date nights on Friday night, Dateline. I think it was like 10.30. We hear a knock on our door, and I jumped up. I'm like, ooh, I hope it's him, right? I'd rehearse what I was going to say. You know, I, I, I heard that knock on the door, and I go and I open it up, and there he is. There's Bud standing there and immediately the smell of alcohol hit me like a ton of bricks i mean this guy was hammered i don't even know how he made it up the stairs to get up to our to our door and it was weird something in that moment actually shifted inside of me when i looked at him standing in my doorway 
I knew that he lived alone. I remember looking at him thinking, man, who gets this toasted on a Friday night by themselves? What, what's his life like? I honestly stood in the, in the doorway of my apartment and I felt sort of sorry for him. And when I heard the knock on my door, I was ready to let the guy have it, right? But as soon as I stepped out of my world, made an effort to maybe try to understand his, all of that changed. Our interaction that night didn't lead to any sort of like fight or argument. We actually stood out in the hallway and talked for a while. And then after that, we were actually friendly with one another whenever we saw each other. That's, that's what compassion is. Compassion is about stepping into each other's world, getting to know each other's story. And I think it has this way of bringing us closer, helping us connect. Chances are there will be people in your group that you have a hard time understanding. They're going to get under your skin, and quite frankly, they're going to drive you nuts. The question is, how much do you know about them? What have they been through? What's it like to be them? Do you know what life was like for them growing up? Do you know what kind of situation they're living in now? I mean, what do they wish they could change about themselves? I mean, how do they feel they've grown over the past year? I mean, getting to know some of these things and practicing a little compassion, it has this way of just moving us closer together. And so we've talked about vulnerability, compassion, and I think the third necessary ingredient for us if we're going to you know, connect and be of one heart is grace. Grace, grace, grace. And if we're going to do life with one another, grace must be like the air we breathe. Because the thing is, we're going to let one another down. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to misunderstand each other, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. But what's going to determine the depth and longevity of these relationships is not the absence of conflict, but it's going to be on how quickly and abundantly we can extend grace, particularly in the form of forgiveness, because nothing separates people faster and more permanently than unforgiveness. I think it's important for y'all to discuss what a commitment to grace is going to look like you know, in your group. But one of the most effective ways, I think, for us to saturate our relationships with grace is through prayer. Prayer is another one of the practices the early church was devoted to. Not only does it tap into the power, you know, to change things for us, but I think prayer more than anything has the power to change what's in us, right? To soften our hearts towards one another. And so I think one of the best things we can do in our groups is actually pray for each other by name. You know, maybe you Pick one person a week. You guys, I don't put put names in a hat and draw them out, right? And whatever name you get, you're going to pray for them that week. There's something about praying for each other that I think turns our hearts towards each other and keeps grace at the center of the whole thing. And so, how do we? How are you going to apply all this into your groups, right? There's there's a couple very practical ways in which you're going to put all this into practice. The first thing, and stay with me here when I say this because it might freak you out. The first thing is that everybody's going to be asked to share a bit of their story, right? This is a way for us to practice both vulnerability and compassion, all right, is to share a bit about your life. You don't have to share everything. You don't have to share your deepest and darkest, right? You can start by just sharing a little bit. Let people know a bit about where you've come from and what you've been through, right? There's a million different ways to do this. I think one of the easiest ways to sort of do this is just pick like three, four, five, I don't know, significant life moments. Uh, three or four things that have happened in your life that have really shaped you, you know, for better or worse. I mean, you can talk about some of the most, you know, life-giving things that have happened. You can talk about some of the most difficult things uh, that have happened to you and just share a bit about that. 
right? And then the group is going to be asked to sort of actively listen. Everybody will get a chance to just sort of share something that they appreciated about that story and then also get have a chance to ask for a question. Tell me more about this, right? Now, you're not going to do this until we get through the curriculum. So we're going to get through this curriculum together, but then you're going to spend the next several times you meet, uh, one or two people is going to share their story uh, each time you get together. And that's what you're going to do for a while because it gives us a chance to get to know one another, to hear a bit about what we've been through, what we've experienced, to help us begin to practice a little bit of vulnerability and a little bit of compassion. The second way you're going to apply this uh, is by developing what we like to call ground rules. Ground rules. Because we don't all play by the same rules, right? What I mean is we all have different ways of doing things, different values, different pet peeves, right? Often what causes most of the conflict in a group is some sort of misunderstanding of one another's rules. For instance, someone in your group may feel like like being late is really offensive, right, and disrespectful. And then there's somebody in the group who's like perpetually late, not because they're trying to be offensive, but because they have like 35 kids and trying to get everyone where they need to be and still make it to group on time. That's not a small task. It's a miracle, right? So if this misunderstanding goes on long enough, eventually person A will begin to hold a grudge between person B for failing to adhere to a rule or meet an expectation that they didn't know anything about. So I think it's essential to practice grace in all of this and assume the best about somebody who, you know, may be bothering you, getting on your nerves. Maybe they aren't even aware that they are offending you. But I think it's important for the group to develop a set of ground rules. I mean, for instance, you know, how are you going to deal with somebody who is late on a regular basis? Or about what about somebody who just doesn't come very often? You know, is that some how are you going to handle that? What are you going to do? I think one of the the biggest Issues you're going to have to figure out as a group. There's like a handful of them uh, that I think groups have to have, you know, some ground rules about. Attendance is one. I think confidentiality is another ground rule, right? Like we we decide that whatever gets shared in the group stays in the group. Um, you know, what do we do when we're talking about divisive issues? How are we going to handle that? Because I do think you need to talk about stuff. If you can't talk about it in a group, you know, where can you talk about it? Um but I think one of the biggest ones people need to have ground rules for uh, is what do you do with somebody who talks too much? Because that happens. Like in every single group, there's somebody who when they start talking, I'm pointing the finger at me right now, they don't stop. They just keep going. And they aren't necessarily even doing it on purpose. And so I know some some groups that have a ground rule. They have like these code words. Uh, whenever somebody's talking too much, I know one group, uh, what they'll do is somebody will just say pepperoni. Like if somebody's just going on too long, they'll just say a weird, ridiculous word. It kind of helps you know keep things light, but it's just a signal. Hey, you're talking a bit much. We need to make sure you know other people have a chance to share. So that's an example of a ground rule, right? This is something that we want you to begin talking about as a group. And you can go ahead and actually start this uh, at your next session together. It's part of the discussion questions for this uh, episode. You can find that on the Group Life app as well. So when you get together, I'd love for you to start this conversation. Um, Again, some of the ground rules that you need to establish have to do with things like attendance, confidentiality, over-talking, and then conflict. You know, what what kind of language are you going to use or not use maybe when you're getting into something that feels a little heated? Like I know know one group that they just sort of outlaw accusatory language, you know. Uh, They don't say, you do this. They say, you know... uh, you, what you said made me feel this way. So it's not accusatory, right? Whatever it is, that's something for you and the group to sort of figure out together. And 
Um, those questions, like I said, are available uh, in the pot, uh, in the app under that same tab for group life. So give those a look, um, talk about it, and then um, you're really close to being done. I think we have like two sessions left. Thanks for listening.